0: Henderson took his time, now for Howe, he's gone wider to Fitzpatrick, he's caught on his left, so he goes with a check side. Who needs a left when he can do that? That's a beautiful goal. Not textbook Fitzpatrick, but gee, that's skill for a man who's two metres plus. Hello and
1: welcome to Attention to Detail. My name is Tim. Thank you so much for joining us. This is part one of our interview with former Demon and Hawk Jack Fitzpatrick. Hope you enjoy it. We had a great time sitting down with him, and it was a really insightful and honest chat about his playing career and all things—not only just footy-related, but a really insightful person to yeah share his thoughts and wisdom with us about everything that he's experienced in his life. So hope you enjoy it, and stay tuned for part two. Go, D's. Alright, well today our guest hails from the 2009 draft in which he was picked alongside some fellow demons including Max Gorn, Jack Trangrove and Tom Scully, ended up spending six years at the club and then ended up going over to Hawthorne and spending a couple of years there. But it's been told that him and Max formed one of the all-time dominant ruck duos that unfortunately didn't get the recognition (laughs) that it deserved but he also made himself known as the uh, Czech side specialist. Jack Fitzpatrick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Very kind intro, yeah. <laughs> very, very kind indeed. You you were right about the 2009 draft. We obviously picked a, a, quite a few good players. Unfortunately, I think we had four in the top 20 and it just didn't quite work out. But I always tell everyone, you guys obviously will know that 2009 was a year the Ds were found guilty. No, sorry. They were fined for tanking but found not guilty, which yeah. still amazes me how that can <laughs> happen. Um, but I always tell people that they actually were tanking to get me at pick 50, mate. There that was go. The, wasn't just <laughs> Trangove. They just thought we can get Fitzpatrick at pick 50.
1: You were touted to go a little bit above 50 earlier,
0: weren't you, in your career in terms of in, in your junior footy? I certainly was. I had a pretty good um, junior career, um, if I don't mind patting myself on the back. Um, I sort of I played Vic Metro under 16s, won the goal kicking at the national carnival. Um, shared the goal kicking with a guy by the name of Michael Walters, who goes okay playing <laughs> for Um, What I don't tell people is that I played in the forward line, and he actually played as a midfielder. So <laughs> he uh, kicked as many goals as me as a mid. But that was a really good team. We had the likes of Tom Scalley and um, some some really good players, Daniel Talia, Dylan Grimes in that team. Um, we won the national carnival, and from that I made the AIS team, which was great. So. In that AIS group were players like Michael Hurley, Steel Sidebottom, Jack Zebel, so on and so forth. Jack Watts um, was a really good crew. Again, um, loved it. Played uh, played bottom-age Vic Metro um, back. You could get drafted as a bottom-age player, but I wasn't old enough. He had to be born before the end of um, before the end of April, and I wasn't, but played bottom-age Vic Metro, um, played one of the National Carnival, which was great. And then going into my top, top age eight, Enzia, um, if they had done a draft... I honestly would have probably been taken in the top three. Um, I probably would have been Tom Scully was clearly daylight ahead. And then the next few were probably Jordan Gisbetts, myself, Kane Lucas, John Butcher. They were sort of the three at that point. Um, So I always look back to last year's national draft with COVID and NAB League not going on. That's a draft that included Nat Fife, included Dusty Martin, I don't know what number they would have gone at. And you would argue that if our under 18 season didn't happen, Max Gorn wouldn't have been drafted at all. He had his growth and, and came on quite late. So the recruiters, <clears throat> pardon me, doing last year's national draft must have had a tough job because honestly, at the start of the year, you would have been picking me ahead of blokes like Pfeiffer and Martin. And I uh, don't know how much of <laughs> that would have been. <laughs> I
1: don't
0: know. Who knows what's going to happen with
1: this draft? But we've sort of seen how much mature age recruitment can have. An impact on playing lists and there's always been a bit of a discussion about you know whether the draft age needs to be lifted from 18 and i guess you look at a lot of these mature age recruits that can come through and have an immediate impact uh you know i'm looking at people in our side currently you know Bailey fritch is a great example aaron vanderberg is another good example uh of players that have that have taken a little bit longer to develop but that's right in in the current situation who knows what's going to happen but i as we were sort of talking about before, midseason draft can kind of hopefully give a few opportunities to some of these players that might not get the chance uh, in a national draft or a, or a pre-season draft, but hopefully they can get another avenue to find their way in the competition. It's a really interesting
0: discussion, um, the whole, not only just the midseason draft, but the whole mature age drafting thing. Um, there are so many positives to it. Um, you're obviously naturally more mature physically and mentally. You come into the system and you're ready to go more. You've had a taste of what real life is like. The, the, the issues that I have with it are that you look at AFL, compare it to the American sports, and this is where a lot of the um, inspiration for a lot of these things come from. They have the college system to start off with, um, which we don't necessarily have. Some of these people would be working as tradies, going to uni, whatever. The other thing is that they make a lot more money when they get drafted and, and play their sports. So you're talking NFL and NBA. We'll use them as the two examples that we're talking about here. They make so much more money that, you go in and you have you know, three years less of a career effectively because you've done your uni degree, it doesn't really matter because you're making millions and millions a year. Whereas, look, don't get me wrong, AFL players make really good money, but the average is $300,000. And I don't know in a game where you get more injuries than you do playing basketball, for example. So if you do your knee in that 18 to 21 period, that is a big difference in itself your career ends earlier AFL players finish it, you know, in your early thirties, whereas NFL and NBA play well into their thirties. And then we talk about taking three years off the career where, as I said, 300 grand a year is, is really good money. Don't get me wrong, but is it enough to be like, are you then making enough to miss make up for missing out on that? What effectively $900,000 effectively. So yeah, it'd be great because people could get a uni degree behind them or an apprenticeship or a trade and they understand what life's like and they're probably more mature when they come into the system. But there's just a couple of other things that, that we don't have in the AFL that the American system does that, that probably makes it more realistic over there.
2: Just a little break the odd, a little icebreaker one. Um, what is your favorite chip and why? Favorite chip? <laughs> yeah. Assuming you favorite mean potato chip. chip. Favorite yeah, um, chip, mate.
0: I I love I love snacks. Don't get me wrong. I don't know if chips are my absolute go-to. I, I'm sort of a I'm pretty flexible. Like if I go to a party and they're just on the table, I'll almost eat them regardless of whether they're plain salt and vinegar. You know we have a lot of salt and vinegar in the house. If I was to absolutely choose, like uh, off the top of my head, maybe like a, a honey baked ham type setup from your kettle would be good or. One of those you get like a, I can't remember what flavour it is. was like a green pepper and something, or something and lime from the Red Rock Daly or whatever yeah, they're called. Lime,
1: that's, lime yeah. and black cracked back black pepper or something like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Like that.
0: <laughs> sweet, sweet chili, the other one, the red, the same brand. So that's probably more my setup. I sound like a bit of a wanker going for your more exotic <laughs> type chips uh, and your absolutely. your plain or your cheese and onion. But um, yeah, that's probably the way I'd be going, mate.
2: Love it. I love it. All right. Well, that leads into our next question. What is your earliest footy memory and how did you develop your love for footy?
0: Earliest footy memory? That's a good question. I don't know if it was my earliest, but it's the first one that's come to my mind. Is we spent 12 months, my family, when I grew up living in Port Macquarie in New South Wales. And I was a mad Hawthorne supporter growing up. My grandma basically, if she had her first word had had her way, my first words would have been Hawthorne. <laughs> um, so I remember we lived up there for 1996. It was the year before I started primary school, the year before. Um, and I do recall watching the final. It was a Friday or Saturday night, I think it was a fr- night final Hawthorne versus Sydney. And I think I was the only person, I mean, I was only four and didn't know anyone up there, but I was obviously going for Hawthorne and, um, they obviously didn't make it cause it was either the week after or the fortnight later that Plugger kicked the famous point after the siren to put Sydney into the grand final after he kicked that point against Essendon. So I do remember that. I remember sitting there watching that game and I would have been, yeah, what four years old. Um, my love of footy. I'm not sure how it developed my old man, you know, just like many of our dads, he grew up, he played footy, he grew up in, you know, played footy at Northcote park. Um, in the old Diamond Valley, he was not very good. He was a captain of the seconds, actually. He he goes on about the glory days of Northgate Park all the time, um, and they won flags. And his excuse for being captain of the seconds is that in his book, if he played at twelve o'clock, he could be finished by two and on the cans two hours earlier than his ten- than his mates who played in the seniors. <laughs> I think he just wasn't good enough. To be totally honest, um, but hey, each to their own. Um, but I do remember even we look at home videos that we have from that Port Macquarie um, the time up there. Me and Dad were kicking the football in um in the driveway, just a little plastic thing at that time. Um so obviously at four years old, I was, you know, marking and catching and, and doing those kinds of things. And I certainly remember being into it right through primary school. So I loved footy all the way growing up, but can't specifically say what exactly it was, probably just a, a normal Australian family that loved AFL. Was
1: there any other sport that sort of threatened to take, like obviously your height would have been handy for basketball.
0: Did, was that ever a forte of yours or stuck playing there to footy? Putrid basketballer. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Putrid basketballer. <laughs> I actually was a good junior athlete. I did a little athletics. So it was footy in winter um, and, and little athletics in summer. So I, I never played cricket. I only played one season at about 15. Love cricket, but no good at it. Um, but I was actually pretty handy at little athletics. Um, so... Mum actually does remember in the year 2000, the Sydney Olympics were on and she remembers quite vividly that I ran up to her quite worried at the age of nine years old. Mum, 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 I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And she goes, oh, Jack, what's wrong? And she goes, oh, and I said, well, the Olympics are on. How am I going to run at the Olympics and play AFL at the same time? It's not going to work. So I was quite concerned at that point in time. Um, I was a sprint hurdler. Um, and I won quite a few state medals, uh, uh, state championships, little athletics. My best result was fifth at nationals. Um, Unreal. and a bastard in the race he fell over, it was wet in Sydney, wet at the Sydney Olympic track. So it was awesome to race there. Um, and he fell over and he actually clipped me, he was in the lane oh. next to me as he fell. So I, I claim that it was his fault that I didn't medal. Um, and my biggest claim to fame, I think, was a, a guy I beat uh, in a Victorian championship once. Um, he ended up going on to win the junior Commonwealth gold at one point. Um, now, I would never have got that good, truth be told. I, I was naturally reasonably quick. Um, and that was probably, you know, one of the key things that people liked about me as a footballer. I was 200 centimeters, but genuinely probably the fastest player in the team. Um, But what actually happened was when I got taller, I got too tall for the hurdles because it's meant to be three steps between each hurdle. Well, naturally, the taller I got, the longer my strides Mm. got. And instead of being able to go low and flat over the hurdles, I ended up having to jump higher and closer to them. And it just meant I was spending too much time in the air. So, um, yeah, probably I I was a good athlete, but I was never really going to ever be an Olympian for argument's sake. But, you know, for example, everyone talks about Mark Blitzabs who nearly made the Olympics, who's now at Geelong. I remember – uh, him and I used to compete against each other at at under 9s and under 10s in the hurdles. And then sort of what happened was he he never really got quick enough to continue in that sprint hurdle sort of regime. So he moved to the longer distances, whereas I sort of stayed at those sprint hurdles. But, yeah, I was too lazy, mate. Anything over 200 metres was too much for me. I couldn't be bothered. (laughs) I
1: remember doing like the 1,500-metre walk. Like that sort of thing. I did little laughs uh, at Ringwood for a yeah, long time and, and was horrible at it, very slow. And it was just one of those things that it was just ended up being a family tradition going down there every Saturday morning. Thoroughly enjoyed it, but yeah, it was no good at anything. Uh, but yeah, some some shocker. Shocker events out there,
0: like the walk and, yeah, yeah. 1,500 meters. and. <laughs> the, look, the walk I didn't mind because you were walking, but it's actually <laughs> quite tough because there is a technique to it. Um, it certainly you know, is. I, I had a theory that in 400 meters, you run around it, I've seen the track once, I don't need to see it again. So, anything more than 400 <laughs> meters, why bother? I've already seen the track. Um, But, no, I loved it. It was great. I, it was seriously good. I mean, I, a, a couple of years younger than me were Morgan Mitchell and Luke Matthews, so they've both gone on to, you know, be Olympians, which is… Yeah. Some, Seriously impressive stuff. So it was, you know, quite a talented little area out there at, at Werribee in the western suburbs, and and I loved it. It was, yeah, it was, it was a good time doing athletics.
1: So moving on to footy, as you said, you got drafted in two thousand and nine, and and came to the club, I suppose, amidst a bit of a not turmoil, but certainly some controversy uh, going around amidst the tanking and everything. It was interesting. We spoke to Kate Roffey last week, our president, and talked about the changing culture probably from close to around your time and where it was probably not as, uh, yeah, upbeat as what it is now. What was your first impressions of the club when you got there and so
0: I suppose the culture around there? Obviously, we take – the tanking happened before I got there. Well, a, a tanking that they never got found guilty for yeah. but fine for. I, I still don't understand that. But that would happen before we got there. We actually – when I got drafted, you know, we had – Max and I were our two latest picks. Max was 34, I think, and I was yeah. 50. Um, and then we had four picks in the top 20 that year. So we had Jordan Gisbets and Luke Tapscott, as well as obviously Tringo and Skelly. We had Watsey, who was the year before, who on a side note, I will... To this day, having played with him and against all those other players at juniors, Nick Nat, Daniel Rich at the time, you name it, Hamish Hartlett, all of those guys, at the time, what's was the right decision? No mistake about that. He was clearly the most talented player. Um, but all of that, we had Jack Grimes, we had Adam Merrick, we had – I went through the list the other day, actually. There was a, an absurd number of early draft picks, James Strauss, Sam Blease, you can go on and on and on. Um, there was actually quite a fair bit of optimism, I thought, Um, because of just how much talent there was. And then we obviously had the older guys. Now we had the older guys like Greeny and James McDonald and whatever else. And then probably that sort of mid-tier as well, you know, your Brad Miller sort of types. Even Lyndon Dunn when I got there was quite young and, and he was, um, you know, an early draft pick and all those kinds of things. It, it was really exciting. And, and I think in those first two years up until the, the infamous game against Geelong where we got beat by about a billion points, <laughs> I think we played some exciting football. Now, we still had some bad losses. And and at the time, there were things that were going in at the club that probably weren't the football department specifically. The club itself wasn't in a great place. But I still think that in my six years at Melbourne, that was clearly the best team and and the most talented. Now, we had areas to improve, make no mistake. And I'm not saying all things were rosy. But if I was in charge at the time, I certainly wouldn't have been sacking Bailey. Um, I think he was a a great man. He, He was great with people. He cared for us. He... A lot of the stuff he was talking about and trying to put into coaching was probably ahead of his time. Um, he, he was excellent, Bales. Um, but yeah, we just, I felt we were sort of on the right track. You go back a couple of weeks before that Geelong game, we were at a very similar area of development. You know, I said, Dustin Martin was my draft. Dylan Grimes was my draft. Jack, Trent Cochin was only the same draft as, for example, Jack Grimes. Um, James Frawley was taken the same draft as Jack Revolt. We had a lot of similarities to Richmond, and it was only one or two weeks before that 100 and whatever it was point loss to Geelong. We beat them, and we beat them reasonably easily. It was about five or six goals. And at that time... No doubt about it whatsoever, we were ahead of Richmond development, in my mind anyway. Now, obviously, Richmond struggled for quite a few years from that point in time, but the crux of the team was there. Asprey was there, Rance was there, Revolt was there, Cochin was there, Martin was obviously there. The list goes on. This does take time, and unfortunately, yet we had a bad loss and there were issues going on at the club, but it was probably more positive than you would have thought. Um You know, they moved McDonald on too quickly. That was clear. There are errors that were made, but there was actually a fair bit of positivity when I first got there.
1: Yeah, I think that Bailey sort of, he definitely was a bit of a scapegoat throughout that season. And they must have felt pressure that they had to act, you know, at some point after that loss. But you're right, it was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. And we certainly were playing some pretty great footy. Um, I remember just... You know, We were pretty fierce and, and we were playing some pretty good-looking football. And I, as I said, amidst the losses, had some great wins in there as well too and was one of those decisions that was made purely based on, unfortunately, one week of footy. And given the margin, I think the club must have felt like that there was no other choice but to do that. And and we all know what happened after that in terms of the um, the carousel that proceeded to to go on after that which you were you know you were there for to see yeah. quite a f- fair bit of that but
0: yeah it, the other thing i will say sorry to cut you off no no you're right. a lot of my recollection so my re- recollection is quite clear but a lot of my what i take out of it is with the benefit of hindsight because at the time i was only in my second year of afl so i was very young and naive to what was going on and completely oblivious to all of that not the external noise, but even the internal stuff. So it's not until I look back with the benefit of hindsight and go, geez, this was going on, or you hear rumors or stories about what might have actually happened. So at the time, for me, it was just pure footy stuff. And, and obviously, um, you know, 186, was it? Point. 186, yeah. yeah. Diabolical. Make no mistake. It is diabolical and should not happen. But I don't know if, well, I personally genuinely believe that sacking Dean Bailey was not the right decision. Um, and my understanding of the time, and I think this has been reported in the media, and this is where I've read it from, because as I said at the time, I was completely oblivious, but my understanding at the time was Cameron Schwab was the CEO. He had been told his contract wouldn't be renewed um, and that he would be moved on, and then the 186-point loss happened, and then they decided to also want to move on Dean Bailey at the same time, and my understanding, and I, I could be wrong, was that, powerful people in the media were telling the melbourne people you cannot sack your ceo and your coach at the same time it will look like the club has imploded and they ended up then going back re-signing cameron schwab despite Mm, having already told him he was Mm. going to be moved on and sacking dean bailey um which you know history will show with you know what ended up happening probably wasn't the right move
1: yeah, that's it.
0: Going on from that,
1: you did have so much change in, in the coaching department pretty much for your time being there. Was it hard as a playing group to sort of feel like you were getting any sort of progress, you know, or any sort of consistency given that, you know, you went through Bailey and then you had Neal and then Ruse, Was it difficult to try and get a grasp on what's going on at the club and the direction that it's going when the head of the chain is, is sort of constantly revolving? It's tough.
0: Look, there's, I think it's clear it was a tough time. For yeah. players, um, the place was a mess, to be honest. It was an absolute shit show. Um, and again, I'm probably more so looking at that with the benefit of hindsight. But I, had five, I was at Melbourne for six years. I had five coaches. Like
1: yeah, that's Dan right. Bailey,
0: Todd Viney, uh, obviously Mark Neil, Neil Craig, and then Paul Roos for my final year. At one point, it was five coaches in five years. I then go to the Hawks. And there were players there, for example, Jared Ruffhead, who got drafted in 2004. And it had one coach for the entire time. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's been pretty well documented. Um, in particular, the Neil appointment was shocking. To put it politely. But, yeah. you know, unfortunately, it's what happened.
1: Just like a relationship with the players. Like, obviously, you know, I remember the whole selection panel and, you know, Gary Lyon was being on there and, and you know, you had blokes like like Sheedy that had gone for the job. And I think externally, and I know it's easier, as you said, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And, and as a fan and supporter looking from the outside in, you, some of these decisions just just seem totally obvious for you. He obviously had some sort of credentials and was backed by his some of his experience, but it just didn't seem like that that translated to what the club needed at the time.
0: He was the opposite of what the club needed at the time. Um, But what I will say in his defense, now, I'll be honest, I'm on the record. I don't like him. I don't have any time for him. I don't think he's a good person. And on top of that, I don't think his coaching was any good. I'm happy to admit that. I'm not going to go into details. I probably could, but this podcast doesn't have four days for me to go into it. <laughs> we are in lockdown, but yeah, that's all right. <laughs> what I will say in his defense is that if you talk to the Collingwood people when he was at Collingwood and they obviously won a premiership when he was a coach there, he was well rated, well respected, well liked. And I'm of the understanding that Mick Malthouse was a big fan of what Mark had bought. So that, I suppose, in his defense and probably the selection committee's defense as well. Um, but, yeah, the whole thing was a debacle and I'm more than happy to admit that I don't like him or have any time for him whatsoever. Well, it's
1: not often that you hear his name sort of thrown out and around I, I think know, the it's, AFL world anymore anyway.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty fitting that he's not even working in footy anymore at all. Yeah. Um, I think that says a lot. When you've been... Mm. A reasonably senior assistant coach at a premiership winning team and you've been a senior coach elsewhere. To not be in the system at all within the next five or six years probably said a lot. He obviously went to Essendon, was moved on from there. Um, and then obviously he was also having something to do. I think it was the Eastern Rangers um, in, in the under-18s, but now I think he's involved in basketball or something. Um, uh, but yeah, look, you look at so many of the ex-coaches who are still involved. Choco Williams has been involved in footy. He was at Werribee in the AFL before he's been back. Alan Richardson's in the AFL. You know, all of these guys at Brendan Bolton's still in the AFL. So many assistant coaches that didn't necessarily work are still in the AFL system doing something. Brad Koch has worked at Brad Koch. Brad Scott. I get mixed between which Scott. Brad Scott's ex-North, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's now working for AFL Victoria or something. So many of the assistant coaches are in the AFL system doing something. The fact he's not probably says all that you need to know is all I will say. Well,
2: oh, thanks for sharing that. Now, I think just a, a little bit, something a little bit on the funnier side, which I was, I was actually listening to your uh, interview with uh, Gus and Gorney on, uh, yes. on the album, on the YouTube page or the, on the Facebook page or group there. Um, can you tell us a funny story about Gorney? <laughs> Knowing that I think you guys, oh, you've probably got many of them. But I suppose, you know, pick, pick your best one. Try not to stitch him up too much, but um, <laughs> yeah, do your best.
0: I wish he'd have texted me beforehand and, and asked me to think of one that I could tell. Cause I would have thought of one that was appropriate, but also stitched him up quite well. And obviously <laughs> smoking on the way to training is well known. So that's not a, that's not a story. Um, actually I've got a story before he became Max Gorn. This entertains me. We're at draft camp. Um, and <laughs> 2009 he was at draft camp. He'd done his ACL in the under-18 system. So he literally went up to draft camp and didn't do anything other than interview with all of the clubs. And Max at the time was a reasonably polarizing figure. He, Him and I clicked straight away. We were two very, obviously, tall players. Um, tall players are, are regularly copying it from uh, from people. But we're happy to give out shit to other people and more than happy to receive it as well. But um, Max went up there and literally didn't do anything except for interview and eat in the food hall of the AIS <laughs> for three days. That was all he did. But one, my favorite moment, and again, this is before he became Max gorn superstar. He was just another tall kid hoping to get drafted at this point. After the beep test at draft camp, this kid from, I think it was South Australia. I can't remember his name, um, but we were all in the rucks group together. So there were probably 10 of us who all you know had to do all our stuff at the same time. Anyway, we did the beep test. This kid didn't score overly well, um, and, you know, he was pretty upset afterwards that he didn't have a good beat test anyway we're in the spa and the ice bath at the ais after the draft uh, after the beat test sorry and in the spa was myself gorney ben griffiths was another one who was obviously at richmond and is now punting in in america yeah and he and gorney were both sitting in the spa because griffo did some form of injury as well i can't remember what but those two were literally sitting there having a spa doing nothing and gorney decided it would be funny to say to this poor kid from WA who's just had a nightmare in the beep test, what are you in here, mate, for? What are you recovering? You didn't even do anything that's worth recovering for. Now, this is to a kid he's never met, by the way. It's not like this was someone he'd known for 10 years. And this poor kid, you know, his, his dreams are to get drafted and do all these kinds of things. And he's at draft camp and he's had a nightmare and gone. He just thought it would be, would be a good idea to ask him why he's bothering to recover considering he's out of the beep test before. <laughs> Uh, did, did he ever respond response to it? I don't think don't, he said anything. I think yeah. shocked, <laughs> upset. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I can't say too many times. We uh, yeah, we get along quite well. And, look, I think the smoking thing is is well known. Yeah. Um, one thing, in the, you know, on a serious note that he always did do is work hard. He's always been competitive and he's always worked hard. He's had other issues and it's taken him ages to sort of grasp and understand footy. Or, or being a professional athlete but one thing he always did was work hard big max
1: and i think he continues to do that i think
0: you know see him on the track
1: especially in the off season and yeah. and now leading the club i suppose would you would you think back to the days that you drafted that he would be the man leading out the red and blue or captain of an afl football team no
0: nah. uh, <laughs> there, there's never any doubt on on his talent i actually remember we go back to when i was under 18s and at the start of the year i was you know going to be a reasonably high draft pick Um, In the first Vic Metro trial game, um, I actually didn't play the sort of the kids that were going to make the team, were didn't have to play. And um, anyway, I I watched this trial game. And again, as I said, I'd been in AIS and played Vic Metro two years in a row. So I sort of knew almost everyone in my age group who was good and all those kinds of things. i would never heard of Gorney. And I genuinely, the first time I saw him, I thought you're here because you're tall and you're very tall, and we'll see what happens. And then in this trial game, he actually played at full forward and kicked a couple of goals. It might have been four goals or something. Whatever it was, he played well. And I actually thought, geez, this guy can seriously play. Um, so there was never any doubt in his talent. But, yeah, there were issues. And, and again, it's been well-documented how much he's grown up as a person and um, the learnings he's had. Now, he was, you know, myself, Tom Scully, Jordan Gisbert, etc. we were all in an AIS group. So we grew up in this elite system. Hanley went to the Dandenong, sorry, the Sandringham Dragons really late in, as an under 18, pretty much once he grew. So he hadn't been around this thing. He went from being a normal 17-year-old kid, you know, as he says, working at Domino's, eating pizza, to <laughs> being drafted in the space of 12 months. It's a really big change. Um, he didn't have a good first impression, even take away the smoking thing. He was very disliked for probably the first 12 months. Um so, yeah, I think the bigger question was how long will he last on the list just in terms of he's rocking up late, he's you know, putting people off the wrong side, he's smoking on the way to training, doing all that. Um, but eventually he worked it out. And, and again, he's a prime example. Like his real he, The first year that he showed that he would be a good ruckman was my last year at the footy club. Yeah, It was our sixth year in the competition. It was 2015. He was drafted in 2009. We are far, far, far too quick to dismiss people. It's not just tall players either. We are far too quick. People develop at different rates. And, um, you know, if he wasn't so tall, he probably would have been shown the door earlier. But now, in my mind, he's clearly the best Ruckman in the competition. He's arguably the best player in the competition. He has been for five years. Just goes to show what can happen when, when the penny drops. Some people, it takes two minutes and they get it and they know straight away. Some people, it takes them six years.
2: I just, I just love that we hung on to him. I'm, I'm so glad that it actually happened. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, I mean, people, you know, there would have been people along the road that have influenced you with your footy career. So, um, who's been the most influential person, um, you've met during your footy career?
0: From a non AFL point of view, I'll look at growing up. Considering I had a, th- a th- you know, a million coaches in my six six years at, at uh, AFL, but or at Melbourne. Growing up, um, there's probably a couple that were really clear. The first one were the the people I were involved with at the AIS program were hugely helpful to me. Um, I grew up, I actually had chronic fatigue syndrome and couldn't train and couldn't do much as as a kid. Um, And the help that I got from the head coach, Alan McConnell, who's been at GWS and is now head coach of the women's team there. Um, And then also the head doctor, Hamish Osborne, and the fitness guy, Jimmy Veal. Those three, the the planning that they put out, effectively a two-year plan, to get me drafted and get me fit enough to be drafted was I wouldn't be, I would never have been drafted without their help. There's no doubt about that. Um, There's obviously plenty of coaches, junior coaches, all the way back to under nines, um, some of which I'm still in contact with to this day. Then there's more, you know, under-18s coaches. David Dixon was a terrific coach. He was a long-time Vic Metro coach um, and it goes all the way back. He was coaching Vic Metro through the 90s, through the early 2000s. Um, I loved Dicko. He was terrific. Um, and then obviously you get to the AFL um, and there's plenty of people. But, um, you know, I guess anyone that, anyone that shows you some faith and, and gives you a chance, I think. So for mine at, at Melbourne, probably 2013 was the one year that I played some consistent footy and regular footy and, and got backed in and that was Neil Craig for me. Um, I'm, I, I owe Craig a lot. Um, and again, there are a lot of other people and I am missing them, so apologies. Um, but, yeah, for mine, if you, particularly those Melbourne days, it's probably Neil Craig.
2: That, was that the
0: year that you knocked off? Was it, was it 11 games? Is that your, your big yeah. year? Yeah, so that was my my big year or my breakout year, for want of a better word. Um, and at that, that point of time, it felt like it was always coming together because as I said, you know, as, a, as an under 17, under, I was going to be a top three draft pick. Now, I had a pretty ordinary top age under 18 year, but I sort of, again, sounds arrogant. I knew I was going to get drafted. I always knew that. And I always had a lot of self-confidence. Um, you know, you go back to under 16s and under 17s. Now, again, things change a lot. But, for example, I would play against Dylan Grimes, who's you know, arguably the best fullback in the competition at the moment, and go pretty well playing at full forward. I always had a lot of self-confidence, a lot of self-belief. I had a lot of injuries in my first three years at AFL. This was my fourth year where it actually started to come together. It clicked. I played consistent footy, and I showed that I could play at the level. Unfortunately, I didn't really put that consistency together again for various other factors. But for me, that was the year that, yeah, I played some pretty good footy. And, and that 2013 Melbourne team was pretty ordinary let's be honest about it um so to have been a tall Ford, who was only 21 who just turned 22 he'd played 10 games to have kicked i think it was something like 15 goals in those 11 games to be a second ruck and do all that if you actually go through the stats on that year i was for the 11 weeks i was in i was something like you know our number one scoreboard impact player number one score involvements number one marks inside it was something like that really impressive stats um Unfortunately, I never really replicated that, again, through to various issues, form, injury, et cetera. Um, but that was sort of the year I proved, yeah, I could, I could play at the level and play pretty well.
1: Like You've got some parallels there with Sam Wiedemann at the moment, which there's a bit of an ongoing debate with. He's spent X amount of years in, in the system and probably like yourself, has when he's played games, he's impacted them really well, similar to what you were just talking about there in 2013. And, yeah, it's just one of those things that I think externally – you know, fans have got to know to be to be patient, but you hope that these people that are inside the club, all the coaches and and the development coaches and everyone that's in there, you, know, you hope, fingers crossed, that they're doing everything for a reason, and and then we can watch these players. Given that they're high draft picks, and yourself, given that you you know would have been had a high prospect, and they would have all had high expectations for for all their draftees, I'm sure. But it's really important to know that and to sort of demonstrate that players will take time to develop and. And making sure that they, they stick to faith. So you've got players like Max and Weeds and yourself that that bloom late. And we know that forwards and, as you said, tall players and key forwards are, have been in pattern. Tom Hawkins gets brought up a lot in the media about how late he develops. You know, it's not uncommon. So I think from an external and a fan and supporter point of view, it's, it's good to remember that hopefully that everyone in the club is making that right decision and and giving them the time and and allowing them to develop and and learn the game and and grow up i think i think what you said at the start for a range of players i think just that life experience and understanding how to be a professional athlete would be a huge thing to enable you to continue your confidence and perform at the best of your game
0: there are so many elements to it and you're spot on um there's the off-field dynamic of it how professional are you how you know do you do the right things do you look after yourself you're not having nights out not not having nights out you don't have to be a stiff but it's it's learning what it's like off field then there's the actual football development side of it um and that can be broken down into so many things my number one pet hate in the industry actually i have quite a few one of them is coaches who see what players can't do and not works with what they can do every player has something they're not good at um, that's a given. And, and when I've, you know, now that I'm coaching, I was at w- where I'd be VFL for a couple of years, and now I'm assistant at um, the Western Bulldogs AFLW team. The number one thing is to reinforce the players that you have stuff that you can bring to the table. It's not to wash it under the, you know, wash it under the carpet and say, yep, yeah, you're not a great kick or you're not fit or whatever. We'll ignore it. We'll help you work on that. But we need to work with you at what you're good at. Cause every player gets drafted for a reason. Some players are super quick, some are super fit. Some are great kicks, some are great marks, some are whatever. Work with that player. Um, And then there's the other thing about about players. Now, Max, the biggest issue he had, now he had to develop because he was tall and skinny and needed to put weight on. He obviously had an ACL. He did another one when he got drafted. So he had that that he was coming to terms with. But there was also the off-field stuff. Some players are perfect off-field, but they don't quite get the training standards. There are so many things that we need to get. Now, you don't just want to give player lifeline after lifeline after lifeline. I'm not saying that every player should be drafted and kept until they're 28 and then you make a decision because there are some who just clearly flout it through arrogance or or a will, unwillingness to join in and, and play, um, be a part of a team. But sometimes it's just ignorance and not understanding it. Um, and I was going to use a, a prime example. Oh, final example that I will touch on about that is I look at myself as a... I got drafted at 18 and again, I was picked 50, but take you out of that top age year, I was probably going to be a top three pick. So I was a reasonably talented junior, but then I come up to the AFL system and I'm playing against whoever it is. Now, there are so many players in the AFL system that from the outside point of view, you might look at it and go, oh, they're not a great player. They're, they're good, but that's probably it. Brad Miller will be an example that I will use at Melbourne. Now, Brad Miller, I think, you know, he had some really good games and had some really good years, but he was not David Neat's for argument's sake. Millsy was probably a serviceable player, I think, would be what people would determine him as. But when I get drafted and he's 27 years old and I'm 19 and he's been doing weights for 10 years as a professional every day, he's been working as a professional athlete every day, that's 10 years of training at an elite level that I need to catch up on. And they are so much smarter, stronger, fitter, all of that, than what you are, no matter how talented you are. Jack Watts is another example. Jack Watts got more talent than all of those people put together. But he had needed someone to learn off. Um, and I go back to my last year playing at uh, Hawthorne. I played a VFL game for Box Hill. We played against the Bulldogs at Witten Oval, and it was Tim English's first year. Now, again, put myself on the back, happy to admit it. I wiped the floor with Tim English that day. But as I should, I was 26 years old. I was 100 kilos as a 200-centimeter player. It was my eighth season as an AFL footballer. Tim English is coming in as a kid. He's 18 years old. 12 months before that, he's in school. It's not to say he's not talented, but so I should wipe the floor with him. And I walked away from that game, and I'm glad that I'm now starting to be proven right. And I thought he's going to be the best ruckman in the comp one day just because of the stuff that he had in terms of his ability, his ability to work around the ground. He could read the play, he moved well, et cetera. But in terms of simple stuff, A, it was strength, B, it was fitness. You can actually be fitter than someone in terms of running a 3K, but the fitness of working with someone every day, day in, day out, I've spent six years of my time, three-hour, four-hour sessions in the middle of summer wrestling against Mark Jamar, Jake Spencer, Max Gorn, Stefan Martin, the list goes on. You just get used to that. It's not even a fitness thing. And that was probably my biggest criticism of the Bulldogs from an external point of view. Obviously, I'm there at the women's team. I have nothing to do with the men's. But my criticism of them for Tim English was that, Everyone could see in the last five years, he has so much talent. And I think everyone's issue with Tim English was that the difference between his best and his worst was pretty big. He could go out and dominate games, and then he could go out as a ruckman and just get thrown around like a little boy. And people are going, he needs to improve those efforts. Well, the reason he was no good at that was because for donkey's years, He's doing preseason. As I said, it's a 40-degree day in the middle of summer. He hasn't been doing six hours of rut contests against Mark Jamar, Jake Spencer, Max Gorn, Stephen Martin, Paul Johnson, John Mason when I get drafted. Like all these players come in. Now Steph Martin goes there and he's only had one preseason of actually going against Stephen Martin to learn what it's like and all of a sudden we see how much better a footballer he is. So, how much better would would he be if he was developed properly from the get-go? As an 18-year-old, he's learning this stuff from the moment he walks in the door. And again, Jake Spencer, Melbourne supporters will look at it and go, yeah, look, he was probably a bit of a cult figure and he wasn't the greatest ruckman of all time. But for other ruckmen on the list, he's 203 centimeters, he weighs 105 kilos. He was probably the, he was the best in the gym at the footy club. If you're going four, five, six hours a day against him in 40-degree heat and it's wrestling and every time you lose a contest, it's made, you're made aware of it, you learn pretty quick that you have to be competitive. And if players like this on the senior list, again, I'll go back to Brad Miller as the example, he could have been around at Melbourne for so much longer because that's the stuff that he could have taught Jack Watts. Rather than just throwing in an 18-year-old kid because he has talent Brad Miller's the one who's been running around, doing these training sessions, learning from David Neitz, all of those things early in his career. That's what helps develop a footballer. And it just frustrates me when that development is clearly not there. Because again, I'll go back to the early draft picks that Melbourne had. Off the top of my list, top 21 picks. Uh, Adam Marrick, Jack Grimes, Jack Trengove, Tom Scully, Luke Tapscott, Jordan Gisberts, Jimmy Tumpus, Lucas Cook. You can go on. There's hundreds of them. Sam Blaes, James Strauss. All of those kids picked top 21 between, I think it was 2007 to 2012. You couldn't stuff up the draft if you wanted to that much. You would have to pick some good footballers in that list. So clearly if all of those players have failed to go on to deliver, now obviously Tom Scully leaves the football club, so he's a bit different. Jack Trengove, a bit unfortunate with injury and the whole captaincy debacle around making him captain at the end of his second year, that probably didn't help. But beyond that, Jordan Gisbert is 18 and goes out in his first game and has, what, 26 touches against arguably the greatest midfielder of all time, Ablett, Bartel. Corey. was going to say, it's Chapman. Geelong, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember like, that. You don't do that if you're no good. That's
1: down in Geelong as well, from memory, I think. In wasn't
0: Geelong. it? Down skilled? Yeah. In Geelong. I mean, Kyle Morton, here's another one. Top three pick. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these play. you can't stuff them up if you want to. So there's clearly something going wrong with the development at the football club that, unfortunately these players weren't given the best opportunity to be a good footballer i remember talking to jack viney i still remember this as clear as day obviously jack viney trained with us a lot as an under 16 17 year old um because he was going to be father's son now todd was our senior coach in my second year but anyway i knew jack reasonably well and we just drafted jimmy tumpus who was top five i think it was yeah
1: pick four i think from memory i
0: think yeah And Lockie Whitfield was pick one in that draft. So I said to Jack Viney just after the draft, what's Tump like as a player? Because they were the same age group. That was the Jack Viney draft. And Jack Viney's response to me was, he's basically, no offense to Lockie Whitfield, he's basically Lockie Whitfield, or as good as Lockie Whitfield, but a better bloke. That was what (laughs) Vine said. Now, you try and tell Melbourne supporters that Jimmy Tumpus is as good a footballer as Lockie Whitfield. They'll pick you up against the wall and say there's something wrong with you. So how can a player who at that time was as good as Whitfield, someone who's played with them and against them, not be in the system anymore? And Lockie Whitfield arguably the best running halfback in the comp and is probably the best ball user in the competition. It's not a a fluke that all of these players um, have ended up out of the system. And it's a thing that frustrates me.
1: I could definitely imagine it. I think it just as you said, just highlights a, a really poor time for the Melbourne Football Club and, and some huge glaring holes in the development uh, side of things. And yeah, unfortunately, all these players that that were highly touted and and for I'm sure coaches and fans alike all had high expectations. And as you said, easy for the externally to judge them. And I'm sure as fans, we're all very quick to judge. Uh, but you just made some, yeah, fantastic points there, and it's a great insight that you give because I think me and Simo can relate a little bit as teachers that there's an element of that that we see. It's obviously there's a certain skill that you're looking for in footballers, but I think just being able to, uh, yeah, really hone in on on skills and, and find things to work on rather than highlight the things that you're not good at. Like, you know, as teachers, we're taught, you know, you encourage kids, to to really flourish in their strengths and find things to improve on. You don't you don't say oh this is not this is what you're terrible at don't do this you can't do that like you know there's certainly parallels there and I was sort of thinking about that as you're speaking just then so but fortunately for us it's we've hopefully turned the corner and you experienced that and 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 now you get to I suppose from a playing perspective and moving into coaching as well too hopefully take some of that on board and that would be part of your coaching philosophy, not to make those same mistakes and those same oversights as what those people did at your time. I think you'd
0: learn a lot from that. I think, you know, I got six years at Melbourne who it wasn't all bad times. I loved it. And I got some great friendships from there. And, you know, there were things that could have been better, but I predominantly loved my time at the footy club. But going from arguably the darkest point of Melbourne's history and and potentially the darkest point of any club's history in the AFL, taking away clubs that, you know, folded or whatever it is and then going to Hawthorne at the end of 2015 who have just won three in a row again we made the top four the next year and I go there we've got obviously Clarko who I'm biased but I think he's the greatest coach of all time the club was strong the gem of footy was Chris Fagan the leadership group Hodge Mitchell Lewis roughhead Gibson Bur- Burgoyne the list goes on um you know we had blokes like Birchall obviously Chip Frawley was there but the list just goes on and on So for me to see the differences between what a footy club should be like versus what it probably shouldn't be like, um, it genuinely enabled me to get a a glimpse of the best and the worst of an AFL footy club. And it has sort of, I think, given me almost a degree on life itself because there are so many life lessons that can be taken out of that. And undoubtedly, um, I think it's, it's made me already a better coach because... Um, I can relate to players when they f- have frustrations. Um, I think one other thing that um, as someone who I think I played I play 26 games and I actually only did it the other day when I was doing some commentary for Channel 7, we worked out I think I played 99 games in total if you include VFL. So roughly we'll say 25 games AFL, 75 VFL. So one thing I like to think I have a really good understanding of for the players are those who not picked in the team and those who might not be the favourites or the captain or the leadership group. To understand that so I think I have a really good an empathy and a sympathy but at the same time an ability to say okay no this is just part of it and you sort of need to suck it up or not suck it up but understand that there is a bit of a ruthlessness or an understanding of football so I think all of that combined I think has been you know something that um has really made me a better coach certainly and and I hope you know now with the women but certainly at the Werribee VFL team as well that I can pass on a lot of that knowledge and wisdom um because yeah I I guess you do have a lot to offer